If you can open in your Bible to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and go back to chapter 1. Open in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And if you've been here with us at Redeemer Church recently, then you know we've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week, we actually preached our, our last chapter of 1 Corinthians. We finished chapter 16 of this this wonderful and challenging letter from the Apostle Paul to this church that he, he planted and spent a year and a half with, uh, and then engaged as some problems were developing among them. And before we leave our study of 1 Corinthians, we want to, we want to go back and, and harvest a couple of the themes uh, that are incredibly important. We don't want to, in other words, leave uh, without without focusing or at least spending some time considering uh, some of the foundations of this book. We've, we've seen Paul's correction, we've seen his love for them, we've seen his concern for them, but what is harder to see is the, the framework underneath Paul's thinking upon which this entire letter is built. Foundations, you can say, upon which the entire letter has stood, stood not just the threads that run throughout the book, but the very pattern to be sown that makes any thread necessary in the first place. And I want to start and, and bring us back to this, this idea of the theology of the cross, the theology of the cross, which is a phrase that actually Martin Luther coined in the early 1500s. The theology of the cross is found mainly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where it's, it's easy to kind of fly by it and you try to wrap your mind around it, but I think it will benefit us to spend our morning this morning thinking about Paul's theology of the cross, what Paul thinks about the importance of the cross and how the cross itself, the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and him crucified, how significant that is, not just to, to the Bible and to the New Testament and to theology, but ultimately to how Paul sees all of reality and how we're meant to see reality and our lives. So let's go all the way back to chapter 1. Let's look at verse 18 through 25, and this is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we come to texts like these and we just ask you once again, the things of the Spirit cannot be understood except by your Spirit at work, helping us, Lord, to see what you want us to see, Lord, and to believe what you want us to believe, Lord, so that our lives can be changed, can be affected, can be different as a result of encountering your holy word. Lord, we thank you that you love to speak to us. You love to lead us into all truth. So do that this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So maybe if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, the context in which we find our text was Paul's disheartened dismay at the divisions that had developed among the Corinthians. Do you remember that? These divisions arose because of what amounts to cults of personality, categories of impressiveness that weren't shaped by the gospel, but were shaped by the world. Eloquence and and rhetoric was esteemed. And so people began to form into factions whose roots were were really uh, driven down into pride and a grab for superiority, right? You remember this? The divisions, how, how can there be, be divisions among you? Some say, I follow Paul, some Apollo, some Peter, some say, oh, we, we, we follow Christ. You remember how Paul said initially, is Christ divided? And, and have you been baptized into Apollos or have you been baptized into Cephas? He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except I guess there were a few that I baptized. Look what he says right before our text in verse 17. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And then we we get into our text this morning for the word of the cross, this this foolishness and wisdom, this power and weakness that unfolds before us. It's not just an aside. It certainly is part of Paul's argument in, in trying to squash the factions and divisions that have developed among them. But our text is stunning. It's stunning because of what it reveals about the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul and his conception of not just the gospel, but of God himself. Again, something that, that no doubt Martin Luther in the early 1500s had, had been meditating on and studying as he entered into this, this complete change of life that he experienced when he experienced the grace of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God, not found in what he could do, Because if you fail one point of the law, you fail at all. So Martin Luther was distraught and distressed beyond measure because of his inability to get to God, because of his lack of righteousness, until one day God shone it all clearly to him through the cross of Jesus Christ. So it was in Heidelberg in 1518 that he he wrote some theses. These aren't the 90 95 that he he posted in Wittenberg. This is is after that. And I want to show you just a few of them. The theology of the cross comes out out of these theses. Number 19 says this. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God 
as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that have happened. This is Thesis 20. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. And then Thesis 21. A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it is. So what in the world is he saying here, right? And, and basically what he's saying is you don't deserve to be called a theologian. If you try to interpret the invisible things about God by the things that we see in the natural world. In other words, Luther is identifying the human temptation to start with what we see, with what the world is like, and particularly what we are like, and then to come up with what God must then be like. This is what we all do. In other words, we often think of God as a bigger or better version of the things that we simply see around us. For example, consider the power of God. Consider the concept of power. How do you define power? What what comes to your mind when you think about power? And by the way, Carl Truman is a Luther a Lutheran scholar who taught me what I know about the theology of the cross. And he says, start with power. And again, how do you and I define power? Well, we tend to to look around or to think about the most powerful person in the world. And whoever you might think that is, that's typically where our mind goes. And then we tend to think, well, God must be kind of like that like the most powerful person on earth, except that he's cosmic and not flawed, right? Even unbelievers acknowledge the big man upstairs. Just think, how does that definition even exist about God? Except that we we start with what we see around us. Or if you think about holiness, or righteousness, we tend, we tend to think about the most holy or righteous or good person that we know. You think, well, what, what is holiness? What is righteousness? Well, you, you look around and, and you think, well, who's the best, most pure, good person I know? And then you extrapolate to God. You think, well, God must be certainly a a more cosmic version of that. But still, you think, well, I mean, who's who's the best person you know? Is it your granddad? Is it Tom Hanks, the nicest person in the world, right? Like, if that's the case, then God simply becomes like this massive, nice guy. Who's, who's good? That's what holiness is. Or maybe a, a cosmic boy version of Mother Teresa who just did good things. You see, God's holiness or righteousness can then therefore be defined or constrained by what we see and what we can conceive of. Or, or think one more about the grace 
of God. And this is where all of us tend to make God into a version of what we see and particularly in what we see in ourselves. We make God to be like something of like we're like. And what I mean by that is we all know ourselves best. And what we know by experience is if you really want someone to like you, I mean, honestly, if you really want somebody to truly like you, what do you have to do? You have to be likable, right? You have to do something that is acceptable or that is likable by them. This is how the world works. We know this every day of our lives. You have to perform in some way to make somebody like you. And then we extrapolate that into what God is like. Because when it really comes down to it, when you really wonder if God is going to be good to you, if he's going to be gracious towards you, if God even likes you today, or when it comes right down to it and God needs to decide if he's good with you, we all tend to hope that the good will outweigh the bad in that moment and then he'll be favorable to us. This is what This is what people tend to really believe about God, including, sadly, most of us in our actual daily lives. We can sing all Sunday morning as Barry pray that Jesus has done it all and there's nothing we need to do. And we wake up on Monday morning thinking there are things that I need to do to make God like me today. Is anybody in that boat with me? I live in that place too often. It's because... We conceive of God by the things that we see all around you. And and this doing theology by what we see, Martin Luther says, is no theology at all. That's all all he's basically saying. He's saying that the only true theologian, and by the way, everyone here is a theologian. Every single one of you and me, we're all theologians because we all think about God. God. Theology is what you think about God. You don't have to be a good theologian. You might be a, a really bad theologian. You, you might say, Eric, I, I, everybody except me. I'm just not the smartest tool in the shed. I don't think about Bible and theology at all. I would, I would challenge you and say, yeah, you do because you think about God, right? So what Martin Luther is saying is the only true theologian worth his or her salt is the one who sees the supreme revelation of who God is and what God is like in the cross of Jesus Christ. Right, this is, that's, that's all that those theses were saying. Look again at number 20. He or she deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. So follow me. I know we've kind of got our thinking caps on today, but follow me here. The theology of the cross, therefore, invites us all to the intentional decision to conceive of God primarily through the revelation of himself in the cross of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. The theology of the cross, this is what, what, Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 1. Theology of the cross is an invitation 
to the intentional decision, each of us making a decision to conceive of God, to define what God is like, primarily through the revelation of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Paul says, Christ crucified is the wisdom of God and the power of God. And how how much more inclusive can you be? What is the wisdom of God except all that God says? All of God's reality according to God. And what is the power of God except all that God does? So Christ crucified is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Meaning all that God says and all that God does is inextricably connected to Christ crucified on the cross. So again, what kind of a a God is, is God? In other words, what is God like? And where can we see that? Well, the Bible gives different answers. We can see what God is like through creation. There's this thing called general revelation where everybody knows that there's a God by what he has made, according to Romans 1, so that no one is, has an excuse. You can't say there is no God because just look outside and look inside. Look at each other. There, there is a God by what we see, right? There's general revelation. And then there's also special revelation. God reveals himself to us and what he's like in the scriptures, not only in the content of the scripture, but also in the storyline of the scripture, we find out what God is like because God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Amen? This is what we believe. But here's the point. The point is, when God reveals himself ultimately in Christ and in Christ crucified, it is there that we see what God is like shine the most brightly. That's what Paul's saying. This is what Luther discovered. And this is something that we must get as well. If Christ is the very image of God, the exact imprint of his likeness, God revealed in human form. And if Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, And if Jesus said regarding the cross, Father, it is for this hour that I have come, glorify thy name. How is is God's name going to be glorified in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, right? If Jesus said all these things and he did, then the theology of the cross says that Christ crucified on the cross, get this, is the supreme place of the revelation of God himself and what God is like and how God saves. This is what's going on here. Which means, therefore, that you and I have to run every theological conception about God, not through what we see in the world around us, and then extrapolate to God. Or not in what you see in yourself or others, and then extrapolate to God. But what we see in Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what the point is. Look again at verse 18. For the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing. Why? Because of what they see. 
you see a, a, a crucifixion, and that's a, a common criminal dying a disgusting death, the, the worst possible death in that day and age. That's ridiculous to consider that good or wise, right? It's folly because that's what they see. Those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what is the cross except the very power of God? Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. Why? Because Christ crucified is stupid. To the Jews, cursed is anyone who hung on a tree. All of the hopes of this Messiah who was ministering for three years completely and totally died the moment the first nail hit his flesh and the wood. Because in that moment, that person by the law is cursed, right? The stumbling block for the Jews because of what they see and folly to the Gentiles. Because what kind of a sign is that? Right? Now, if Jesus would have would have climbed down off of the cross and then wiped everybody out, well, then now we're talking. Because when, when we see that, that's what by definition equals power. No, the, the Jews demand signs. Greeks want wisdom. This, this is folly. But we, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But... To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then in chapter 2, we'll sneak one from chapter 2, right? Where Paul says this famously, For I desired or I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So this is the concept. There's only two points this morning. The first is, is the concept, and I know that this is very conceptual. And the concept is this. 2,000 years ago, God invaded the world. God absolutely and stunningly invaded the world. From heaven, God's invasion began. But what kind of an invasion was it? What comes to your mind when you hear the word invasion? And what that means by the things that we see the cosmic kingdom of God invaded this world to begin the restoration of all that was destroyed by sin and in bondage to death. And this invasion came in a helpless baby who was born and laid in a manger in a stable to two unknown nobodies. This boy would live a relatively obscure Life, he had no home during his ministry, but loved to or, or lived to love and to serve, and finally to confront the religious of his day, only to be falsely accused and crucified. The invasion of God to restore and redeem all of humanity and all of creation included a nasty crucifixion. Right? And yet in this seeming foolishness and weakness explodes the utter wisdom and power of God to save us and the world he created by destroying sin and death with 
a sin-bearing death on the cross. And this is why Paul speaks of the cross as the revelatory nexus where true wisdom and power are defined. The wisdom of God and the power of God are found in the cross. So we try to put this concept together some before. You remember we thought about power. How do you, how do you think about power? What is power? How do you conceive of power? And certainly we can see God's power and what he has made in creation. We can certainly see God's power by his miracles, his acts of wonder, whether it was the flood, whether it was the parting of the Red Sea. We can certainly see God's power. And, and, and conceptually, I think we can think of God's power as massive and unlimited beyond what we can imagine. But Paul is directing our eyes to the supreme revelation of God's power in the cross. This is where Paul says, if you want to see power, if you want to look, if you want to find out what God's power is really like, then go to the cross because the cross is the place where God in his power vanquished his enemies forever. God's Final power over sin and death and hell was revealed in his wrath against sin, poured out on his son on the cross. It is within the weakness of a crushed Savior dying a common criminal's death on the cross that the supreme power of God over all things is most displayed. This is where we see power most clearly. And there we find that God's power, by the way, is made perfect in weakness. Listen, getting that right in your heart and mind and life will change your life. That God's power is made perfect in weakness. Which means that anyone with any kind of authority here, men, women, husbands, moms, parents, bosses, teachers, supervisors, superiors, pastors, leaders, what do you think power is? Except something that is supremely displayed in weakness and used in selfless sacrifice for others. This is power defined, not by the world, but by God, Christ crucified, the power of God, the wisdom of God. And then, and then you just run all of your conceptions about God, all of your theological categories about God, not through what you see, but through the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about the kingdom of Christ. Jesus is the true king, but what kind of a king was he? And therefore, what is God like with regard to his authority? Well, our king, again, listen, our king was at his kingliest when he was waging war and reigning from the cross. Our king used his power 
to humble himself and make himself nothing, as Gordon read earlier while we were singing, and with a sign that said, the king of the Jews above his head, our king's selfless self-sacrifice for us, conquered sin and death for us, and then swept servants and subjects like us into his reign because we indeed will reign with Christ because of what he's done on the cross. Look, Christ indeed triumphed over sin and death and hell on the cross. So then, how could triumphalism be defined as anything other than what we see in Christ himself? Right? This is what it means to to see how the world's greatest triumph ever happened and to conceive of God in Christ that way. Think about love. Let's run love through the, the cross of Jesus Christ. The world believes, and you know this, we often live this way, that, that love is deserved. Human love is deserved. And it's bestowed on the attractive and the lovely and the worthy. We know that the lovely deserve love. So we bring this conception to God, and we think that that's what God is like. And then we do all manner of things to make ourselves lovely or lovable. Or on the other side of the coin, we spend a majority of our Christian lives wondering if God loves us. Because we know ourselves best. And we know the inherent unloveliness and ugliness inside of us. But on the cross, we see that that true love, God's love, is a love that acts On the cross, we see the love of God that acts to make the unlovely lovely and to make the unlovable lovable. Look, when the Bible says, this is how we know what love is, Christ died for us. Do you make that connection? This is how we know what love is, that Christ died for us. It's because of the radical revelation of what true love is, the true love of God that we we see in the cross that so contradicts and is the opposite of human love. Because human love is, is often passive. It's only activated when there is an input to respond to. We love things because they appear or present themselves as lovable to us. But again, God's love is an act of love. It doesn't wait for input from you to act. This is the powerful difference with God's love. God never waits for input from you to decide if he will love you. His saving and fatherly love is and always is only active and proven by the cross because... Even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know that verse? Even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. You know what the whole verse is from Romans? Let me show it to you. Romans 5, verse 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, not for the lovable, 
Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. I mean, can this hit you with like concussive force right now? But God shows his love for us. I mean, if we took that down, how would you finish that sentence? God shows his love for you. Through what? Good vibes? Singing the repetitive worship song over and over and over again that tells you that God loves you? By something good that's happened in your life and not something bad that's happened in your life? God loves you because you've been extra good this week or you had times reading the Bible and prayer and you actually hit three out of five family worship times during dinner? I mean, God God shows his love. Where, Christian, then, if that is in the Bible, do you look for God's love? What is the greatest definition of God's love? Well, he finishes. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what is so stunning. There is nothing attractive in heinous sinners like us. And that's why the love of God is so powerful because it acts upon us, the unattractive, and makes us attractive to him by the grace of God because of the cross. Which means that all earning of God's love dies when the cross defines what the love of God is. Before you had done anything good or bad, God chose you and loved you with an everlasting love. So how can we conceive of the love of God being contingent or dependent on what we do? It's just bad theology. You're seeing God wrongly. Until you see the character of God and the action of God and the truth of God in Christ crucified. You know, we sing how deep the Father's love for us. The reason that song will last for hundreds of years is because behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. It's a song that connects the love of God to the cross of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is going to bless that song. It's going to last for a long time. Now, it's good to be reminded of, of, yes, God loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Yes, he loves us. Yes. But what Paul is saying is, as you sing that song, do you conceive of, of whether or not you feel loved in that moment, and therefore it's a great song? And it was a good, good time of worship. Do you conceive of, of whether you feel lovely or not? Or do you sing Oh, how he loves me. And you picture Jesus Christ crucified on the cross for you. Loving you with an everlasting love and redeeming you and reconciling you. Before you had done anything lovely for him. Think about holiness. The cross, by definition, was a curse. The unholy died on crosses. And yet the holiness of God shone through as the pure and spotless holy sacrifice. Jesus was set apart by God 
and was crucified for the sins of the truly unholy and impure so that we could become holy and sin would be removed from the holy God. Think about righteousness. We who are truly filthy and cursed by God are credited with his perfect righteousness and cleanness because he took upon himself our filth and our curse. You see these these opposites that exist. The mystery and the, the pure wisdom of God at the cross of Jesus Christ. You think about freedom. What does it mean to you to be set free? From whatever, right? What If you're looking for some sort of a freedom in your life, or you feel stuck or you feel bound, and again, we can sing all Sunday morning that, that, that our, our, our chains have been broken, we've been, we've been set free by Christ. The reason that this is true is because Jesus on the cross sets lifelong captives to sin free by increasingly being captured and bound and turned over and eventually confined to solitary as he hung in no man's land between heaven and earth with nails that affixed him to a cross until he died. He was bound so that we could be set free. If you wonder then how God sets people free, consider the cross. Consider what Christ has done and the power of God demonstrated on the cross. A real power that has the ability to invade your stuckness and indeed set you free. Think about grace. It's defined as unmerited favor. And where do we see Grace most clearly, except in the undeserved favor of God himself given to those who don't deserve it, because the only one who deserved grace received judgment and punishment on the cross. Think about mercy. It's defined as not getting what you deserve. Where more do we see those who deserve not getting what they deserve, because he who does not deserve got what we deserve? You see? Grace and mercy are are the two Christian virtues that are are meant to govern how we interact with each other all the time. Grace and mercy. The grace that we have received. Be gracious toward one another. The, The mercy that we have received. The forgiveness that we have received. Forgive each other just as God and Christ has forgiven you. Look, I'll tell you, forgiveness is humanly impossible because we just can't get the splinter out of our brain with regard to to what someone has done for us. Forgiveness only begins when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the Son of God hanging there saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I wonder if you see you could you could go on glory humility hope faithfulness peace rest they're they're all defined the cross of Jesus Christ all theology shines 
brightest in the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Are you following me here? This is so important. And I say that this is so foundational because this is why Paul then begins to solve all of the problems in Corinth with the gospel. This is, this is why when we get to each section of concern and things that, that, that Chloe's people had written to him, things that he had heard about, things that they had written to him, questions that they have, that things that were blowing up, things that were dumpster fires in the church, how then did Paul go about addressing these? Well, he addressed them all with the gospel because This is the connection that's made. This is the second point. If that's all the concept, and thank you for hanging in there with me, and I encourage you to to think about these things. And it's a simple concept to, to figure out how in your mind you can conceive of God in a particular area about what God is like through the cross of Jesus Christ. Just do that experiment and see where the Lord takes you. But here, the the second part is the connection. How does all this connect? What is the connection? Well, this all connects in 1 Corinthians in terms of why and how Paul then proceeds to solve problems in Corinth with the gospel. If the theology of the cross is the concept worth considering, then the connection is this, that all of the problems that we have in our souls can be solved because of and in light of the cross. And that's a staggering statement. But true. That all the problems that you have right now in your soul can be fixed and can begin to mend and heal and can be solved first at the cross of Jesus Christ and in consideration of the cross of Jesus Christ. All of the disconnects in our behavior, same with the Corinthians, all the ways that they were behaving badly were first a departure, not just from God, not just from the Bible, not just from Christianity and orthodoxy, but they were first a departure from the cross of Jesus Christ. And that was Paul's deepest concern. Let me just close with three examples. Number one, the the example about divisions and factions, which is so prevalent in Christianity today. These ideas of superiority, these ideas of otherisms, whatever it is that places you in a different place than that, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, all believers. The divisions and factions, how does Paul solve this except by drawing their attention to the cross of Christ in our text even here today? And the blood of Christ shed for us all and the power of God to cleanse and forgive and remake and renew all of us. In light of this, how how can there be factions based on who preached to you or who baptized you or the eloquence of what was preached to you? To do that is to gut the cross of its very power, namely its power to unify. 
Who do you think that you are better than? How does self-righteousness in your heart towards anyone else, how does self-righteousness survive with a full-faced look at the cross of Jesus Christ? It just simply can't, which is why Paul solves the problem of divisions and factions with the cross of Jesus Christ. How did Paul deal with sexual immorality in chapters 5 and 6? Do you remember? He didn't say stop it for the love of all that's good and holy. What are you doing? Now, he was aghast at certain parts of their sexual immorality. But how does Paul solve the problem of sexual immorality in any form in a church? Answer, with the cross. Certainly with our identity. Look at it again in chapter 6, verse 18. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, this is identity, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And then here, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Where were you bought with a price, brothers and sisters? On the cross. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Where did Christ claim his ownership of you? Through the precious price of his blood. Where did he purchase you to redeem you from sin? Where did that purchase price, your ransom, happen where you were set free from all kinds and all manner of sexual sin. Look, it was on the cross of Jesus Christ, which means that if you are in sexual sin or in bondage or deviance or confusion or wondering or if you're addicted to pornography, guilt and shame is not going to heal you. It never has and it never will. Your first step is to full face look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And then say, what does that say? What is what God reveals himself through Jesus? What does Jesus dying on the cross and shedding his blood for the ransom price of my life, what does that then therefore say to what I'm doing? Look, that's the connection. The, the power of God is found in the gospel, in the, in the crucified Christ, who if you begin there, you will be on a path toward healing and real change because of the love and the grace of God in Christ shown on the cross. Look, these are, these are important for us. We can't miss these themes. They run through the letter and through all of Paul's theology, including suffering in 2 Corinthians. Suffering is never good. But how can you endure suffering without going crazy? Except to see on the cross the, the most cosmic injustice happen to the most innocent man, and yet in that deep suffering, God caused it for the most universal good. So all we can cling on to 
is that any suffering in our life, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, it at least tells us we have one who knows suffering like us. We know that there is one who will punish. No one's going to get away with what they've done. And we know that God is able to turn any of our suffering into good. Amen? How do you, how do you persevere through suffering? Most powerfully, the answer is by full face looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Does this connect? Does this make sense? This is what Paul is telling us. This is what he's trying to help us to see. I wonder as we close, you think about how to apply this. And worship team, you can come. I wonder if you can just think of one area of your life right now that you're struggling with. What's one area of your life? What's one place that is distressed or distressing? Whether it's relational or physical or financial or or whatever it is. What I'm suggesting is if you think about that area of your life and then see and think about how does Christ crucified inform that, how I think about that, what I should do, I'm telling you that that's a doorway into a kind of freedom and peace, communion with God, which is why Paul through this whole letter, is committed the gospel in general to Christ crucified. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see what you want us to see. In Jesus' name, amen.